So we're dropping in to a, uh, a series again, this Ever After series, where we've been talking about what happens when you die. And, uh, uh, you know, we, there's been some, some, some movements here. We've been in the book of Ecclesiastes quite a bit over the past couple of weeks. And today uh, is a little different. Uh, t- today is meant to be a sobering day. And just to remind you of, of what we've talked about even of last week, I, I put together a couple of charts for you last week just to try to help you understand some of these concepts. We, we talked about how that each of us, are, are, are a, we have a body and a spirit. Can you put those, those charts up there for me? And you, you are a body and a spirit. And when your, when your body dies, uh, your spirit, we're told in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, your spirit is set free. And your spirit is sent to God. God gave you your spirit, and your spirit returns to God. And at that point, God determines where your spirit will spend eternity. And the word for the the grave or the beyond, if you will, in the Old Testament is this place called Sheol. Now, Jesus in the New Testament took that concept and helped us to understand that that Sheol is not a singular place. It's actually divided into two parts. Go ahead to the next graphic for me. And we described from Luke chapter 16 last week uh, between the, uh, the parable that Jesus told about Lazarus, uh, the beggar, and the rich man. And how that illustrated that there are literally two compartments, if you will, uh, in Luke 16 uh, uh, that, that are divisions of Sheol or the grave. One is what we would call heaven and one is what we would call hell. Paradise, if you will, or, or Hades or other words that are used for that. And we were uh, you know, just compelling you to understand and, and just kind of wrap your brains around this concept that everyone spends eternity somewhere. And I believe what the scriptures tell us is that everyone spends eternity in one of these two places. And we're going to take the next two weeks today and next Sunday to describe those, those two places. And we're, today we're going to be talking about hell. Next week is about heaven. And there's a movement in modern Christianity to downplay hell or maybe even to deny its horrific existence altogether. Theologians have tried to explain it away. Philosophers have tried to reason it away. But you and I need to embrace and accept the fact that hell is a real place, and we need to understand uh, why it's, it's, that's important, because when you embrace this, this place, this eventual place for people that are far from God, people who have never accepted Jesus Christ, and I believe that even the believers in this room will be compelled to do something about that. I find it ironic that most everyone in our culture embraces the concept of heaven. I mean, when's the last time you went to a, a funeral and they were like, yeah, that guy went to hell. I mean, that just they don't say it anymore. It's just something we don't talk about. Everybody goes to somewhere up in the sky. Everybody goes to heaven. Everybody has embraced the fact that there is a, a heaven, possibly. But, but the concept of, of hell is actually lampooned and mocked in our culture. Most people don't fear that hell exists. By the way, that's exactly where Satan wants our culture to be. Satan wants us to laugh about hell. Satan wants us to make a mockery. Uh, uh, Satan wants this to be just a, a sloppy curse word used by many people in their daily conversation, so much so that it really loses its punch. Some Christians might cringe when someone uses that term around them, but most of our culture really is numb to the concept of hell. But this existence of a literal place called hell is a serious reality that we must embrace. And I want today to be a shock to your system. In fact, the Lord has impressed upon me today that today is not a message of hope and it's not a message of celebration. It's a reminder of what awaits every person who does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And we don't cheer at that. 
we don't revel in the intense torture that our fellow human beings uh, throughout uh, will have to endure throughout all of eternity. In fact, we should, as believers, grieve its necessary existence. We should strive as hard as we can, as much as it is up to us, to depopulate this place as much as it is possible. And as much as we celebrate eternal life and we sing about eternal life, we need to lament eternal death. We need to lament the fact that there is this place, and each of us should reckon with this. We should evaluate our own spiritual journeys, our own spiritual lives in light of the existence of hell for the unsaved in the room. This is a clarion call for you to see the trajectory of your decision should you reject Jesus Christ and not acknowledge him and choose to follow him. For the believer, this is a call for each of us to consider our friends and our family who are far from God. And as I was praying about how to deliver this, how to talk about this today, it was impressed upon me by the Lord that I should read the scriptures back to back to back to back this morning. I'm going to make you uncomfortable with how much Bible I'm going to read today. I believe the word of God is powerful enough without my commentary. In fact, I had to narrow down the list of passages that refer to hell and describe hell. And there, there are so many of them, they will not be on the screens. The words of those passages will not be on the screens for my note takers there will be references on the screen but I want you to listen I want you to be uncomfortable today and listen to the word of God as we describe this place from the scriptures called hell Daniel chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 at that time Michael the great prince who protects your people will arise and there will be a time of distress as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, but others to shame and everlasting contempt. Matthew 8 in the New Testament, starting at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the, listen, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 10, starting in verse 26. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Not, and not even the very hairs of your head will be, are, are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me, Jesus says, before others, I will also acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my father in heaven. Matthew 13, starting in verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where did the weeds come from? Oh, the enemy, an enemy did this, he replied. 
The servants asked him, do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. A few verses later, in verse 36, he explains this parable. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy sows them. The enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin, and all people who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the son of their father. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Verse 47 of the same chapter. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was lit down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 18, starting in verse Eight, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Matthew 22, starting in verse 8. And then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. But those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Second Thessalonians, Paul speaking here, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which, uh, for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who believe. This includes you because you believed in our testimony to you. You believed our testimony to you. And then finally, the continuation of our story from last week, Lazarus and the rich man. We're told in verse six of 22 of Luke 16. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. 
The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you were in agony. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, I know that's a lot of scripture. And I've taken the liberty of isolating the verses from these passages for the screens behind me that specifically describe hell to hone your mind in on what we are looking at today. Just follow along with me. They'll be on the screen here. These are the passages taken from those excerpts that describe specifically what we're talking about today. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will wake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. King told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. In Hades. Where the rich man was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, there is a great chasm between us and you. A great chasm that has been set in place. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. It's a bit unsettling. But I need you to hone in for a few moments that we have left here to consider hell. What can we learn about hell from what I just read to you? I'm not going to give chapter and verse 
I'm just going to give you some principles from all the passages that I just read to you. And we'll sort these out together and come up with a composite that may help us to understand what's awaiting for those who are far from Christ. Number one, hell is a separate place from God's heaven. Hell is a separate place from God's heaven. We can be assured of this, that what we have read in all these passages is there seems to be a great sorting of the people at the end of day. There will be a time when there will be two camps of people that are sorted, those who are for Christ and those who are against Christ. Jesus even says that those who would disown him on the earth will be disowned in the afterlife. Those who reject Christ are sent away from him because they've already rejected him on earth and now they will be rejected into eternity. Many of these passages describe the place where they are sent. In fact, the first one I just read to you from Daniel chapter 2 is described as a place of eternal shame and eternal contempt. Now, when I first read that, I thought, wow, that means that a person, when they go to hell, is full of shame and they are full of contempt. But actually, as I began to do some research on the passage, it actually says it's not a place where people show contempt toward God. It's the place where the shame and the contempt of God are aimed toward the inhabitants of hell, where they will feel the shame of what they have done, and they will feel the contempt of what they have done against a holy God as they endure the just punishment of God for their sins. An inhabitant of hell is the object of God's wrath at that point. And hell has a definite state of separation. As we understand, God's people uh, go to the pleasures of heaven, but those who have rejected Christ, those who have rejected God's Son, uh, go to destruction. And as the rich man in hell says in Luke 16, what he observes and what Abraham tells him is that there appears to be a great chasm between those two entities separating the inhabitants that will never be breached. The two worlds will never collide. They are distinctly different and opposite in nature. And they serve as polar environments with contrasting experiences for those who will live there. Now, even though they are contrasting in experiences, they actually have something in common. And this is point number two. They're both forever. Hell is eternal. Hell is not a temporary state. It's not a place where you can kind of work it out. There is no exit door. Once you are there, you have determined the trajectory of your your existence from that time forward. Your time to decide where you go has elapsed. And as much as we celebrate eternal life, we must remind ourselves of the converse of eternal life, which is eternal death. Hell has no ending, even though the people of hell wish it could all be over. Now, I need to qualify this because, you know, uh, there will be a time that we describe in coming weeks of what happens. I've described to you that what we describe as heaven and hell are temporary holding places, that there is a permanent place where those will be. But rest assured that what we describe of hell and what we see in Revelation chapters 19 through 21, the description here of what happens to the inhabitants of hell, it carries through. There's an extension of what the inhabitants of hell are already experiencing. The fire of hell is going to be turned into and cast into an eternal lake of fire that is everlasting. And there is no reprieve from the suffering there, and it never ends. Hell is also shut out from God's presence and shut out from his glory. Imagine everything you've ever envisioned about the attributes and the qualities of God that you appreciate. Think about the beauty of God's existence. He's perfect. He's holy. Dwelling in bright light. Good. Merciful. 
gracious, kind. This is what we think about when we think about the attributes of God and what heaven is going to be filled with. Now, I need you to take the inverse of that list. The incongruous, corrupt, darkness, evil, merciless, malevolent, and cruel. These are the descriptors of hell, which are the opposite of God's glory. And again, this great chasm that exists between the two places described in Luke 16 is a source of frustration for those who are in hell. This man, this rich man, begs for someone to go and warn those who have not yet died so that they may not come to this place, that they might repent of their sins, that they might make reconciliation with God so that they would not go to this place. He doesn't want others to come there. He doesn't want others to experience what he is experiencing. But the sad part is his life has been rendered obsolete and he is stuck, shut out from the presence of God. And he is encountering at that moment the void of God's influence and its harrowing existence in darkness. And no one ever would want to be there, even the people that are there. Hell is a place of destruction and punishment. It's where humans pay the price for their unatoned for sin. It's uncomfortable. It's unsettling. It's tortuous. It's the result of sins. It's not some big party where people get to do whatever they want. It's the consequence for rebels for not obeying the instructions of a holy God. It's a prison sentence with no prospect of clemency or parole. It's the judge's gavel that's hammered hard with the sentence that you are guilty as charged. And this is what you have earned. It's punishment. Hell is a place of darkness. Of intense perpetual fire, torment, agony, weeping, and the gnashing of teeth. And again, as I think about all the descriptors that were given in those passages that I just read over you, it appeals to the senses. What do people in hell feel? What do they see? What do the people in hell hear? What, what, is the, what are the senses that are encompassed here in hell? Probably the most intense darkness that you've ever encountered. Pure evil, a conscious immersion into uh, incorruptible, a corrupted, if you will, darkness. And yet the air is rife with the intensity of the burning, the overwhelming screams of the miserable, the agonizing heaving of pain, and the sighs of deep regret. In fact, the two... Uh, Descriptors that most spoke to me in my study of this was that they would be weeping. It comes over and over again. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. The weeping is over the regret. The weeping is over the agonizing and the pain. And the gnashing of teeth is like when you are gritting your teeth in anticipation. You know, some of you do this before you get a shot, right? You sit there and you griff and you're waiting for the pain to come. It's the anticipation of all that's going to happen to you at that moment. The gnashing of teeth is the preparation, the anticipation of, and the enacting of pain. And these are tangible signs, the, the, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth of an agonizing lament. The sentence is final. There will be no reversal of fortunes. The people there are bracing for eternity. They're bracing for the punishment Meanwhile, those in hell come to grips with the reality that it could have been different. If only I had repented when I had the chance. If only I listened to the gospel when somebody shared it with me. But yet I chose my own way, and this is where my rebellion ends. And the consequences of my choices. I had somebody come to me last week as they knew I would be talking about hell, and they were from California. He reminded me of a place that I actually got to visit one time. Anybody ever been to Alcatraz? Alcatraz was a federal penitentiary 
It's located on an island outside of San Francisco, San Francisco Bay. And the distance between the island of Alcatraz and the city of San Francisco is about 1.25 miles by water. And so you would think that uh, this is a place where they sent their murderers, where they sent the hardest of criminals, the gangsters, all these guys in the early 1900s. It was reserved for them. And you would think that in this extremely isolated place, that the worst part of being in Alcatraz would be in the, in the nine foot by five foot cells. They're only seven feet tall, nine foot by five foot. You would think that would be the most agonizing part of, of, of being there isolated on Alcatraz. But the inhabitants, uh, the, the criminals who spent time, the prisoners who spent time in Alcatraz described what, what they experienced as the worst. It actually wasn't what you would think. The worst part for them of living in Alcatraz was at night when they looked out their windows across the bay. And, and they saw the merriment. And they saw the lights of the city. And they saw people living their lives in complete freedom. And yet here they were trapped in their cell. And all they could do was look across the divide. Look across the 1.25 miles. And the, the sounds of the city traveled over the bay and hit their ears. And all they could hear was the merriment and the life. And the reality would hit them is, I can't have that. I can't have that. It is so close. I can see it, but it's so far away. How frustrating and tortuous that must be to be so close and yet so far away. This is the descriptor we actually have here in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man as he's looking across and he's talking to Father Abraham here. It's for those who disown the Lord, who do not know God and who don't obey the gospel and they have to live with the consequence of that. Knowing full well what others get to experience and yet they can't themselves. Hell is also reserved for those who have rejected the lordship of Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, said it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. In other words, your will be done. Ultimately, God gives you what you want. If you want him, you get him for eternity. If you reject him, you reject him for eternity. If you know him, he'll meet you there. If you don't know him, the scariest words will be uttered to you, as quoted in the scriptures when Jesus said, I will turn to those and say, depart from me. I never knew you. Do you know him? For every unbeliever in the room, do you, do you know him? Have you ever... Have you ever considered surrender? Have you ever considered surrendering? Because, you know, we talk about the penalty for our sin. When Jesus died on the cross, he died, died to pay the price for your sins. And you don't have to pay the price for your sins. Those in hell are paying the price for their sins. Those who are in heaven have allowed the blood of Christ to be applied to their lives so that Jesus takes the punishment. Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, we can walk free in this and we are forgiven of our sins. We don't pay the price for our sins. But for those who are not in Christ, I hate to say this, but you will pay the price for your sins in an eternal separation from God in a place called hell where you will be punished and you will pay the price for your sins. And I don't want that for you. That was the bad news. Let me give you one good news gospel verse here. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 
chapter 3, verse 9 of 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I love that thought. Can I just be honest with you? Everybody in this room, including me, deserve hell. I deserve hell. I deserve, I, I know I'm a rebel. I've turned against the heart of God. I've done things against his heart and his nature. And I deserve to be punished. There's nothing good in me except for what Jesus Christ has done and is doing in my life. And God has seen fit in his mercy to forgive those who believe in Christ and allow him to take the punishment that they deserve. And if you are in a place right now that you have not repented, you are far from God, I need you to understand that Jesus loves you. God is not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And today is your day. Trust him with your life. Confess him as Lord. Surrender your heart to him so that the trajectory of your life may be changed. And you're not going to hell. You're going to heaven. That's next week. I can't wait. Believers in Christ, do you really, oh, listen, do you really believe hell is real? <clears throat> if hell is real, through that filter, how are you looking at your neighbors and your coworkers and your friends, students, your friends at school who don't know Jesus? If hell is real, what are we doing about it? Hell is real. And where are they headed? And what are we, what are we, what are we going to do about it? It's, it's up to us. Our hands, our feet. We can be the mouthpiece of, of the Lord. Are we okay with the folks that we know and care about dying and going to hell? Christians. It's kind of sobering, isn't it? Today isn't about celebration. It ain't about reveling. This is about brokenness. And Are you broken enough about hell that you do something about it? Are you prepared to know that you're not going? This is meant to scare you. This is just to put this truth of the reality in your face. This is why I just put so much scripture in this because I want you to hear and see what Jesus says here through his word about this place so that you might trust him and believe on his name. And then those of us who are believers, that we might take this and share it with somebody else, that their life might be changed so that they don't go to this place, this real place.